Uh, when I was 21 and I was a medical student, <clears throat> I put on, there was a, um, I read a collection of poems called The Adoption Papers, which we then adapted um, for the stage in the Caramarks Hall on Huntley Street, somewhere in the middle of London, Tiny Hall. We built this wooden stage and it was uh, about a number of voices um, written by Jackie Kay, who I have been a great fan of ever since that time. And Jackie Kay, uh, award-winning, acclaimed and astonishing uh, writer of both uh, fiction, short fiction and poetry, now then together with friend, patron and gold uh, medal winning poet Joe Shapcott are going to join us to talk about the imagined voice. I've been warned that this is uncharitable. <laughs> and I, yeah, I'm in trouble, I think. Um, Jackie, it seems to me that the imagination, or at least our capacity to invent, is both um, trouble for us, potentially, and redeeming. And it, you know, this struck me particularly in your memoir, Red Dust Road, when you were talking about how you had invented your real father, um, your biological father, um, as a fantasy, and that, that there was only one possible end to that kind of invention. Um, and then similarly, actually, through telling the stories, through telling fiction and poetry, and indeed that's that beautiful story of Red Dust Road, it's somehow freeing and redeeming. Is that something you recognise, the dual possibilities of invention and imagination? Yeah, I think, I think so, definitely. I think you know, when you're adopted, you get introduced to that pretty early on because you have this imaginary uh, version of your other life or your potential other life, the road that you, you haven't actually travelled. And I was lucky because my um, adoptive mum, uh, who Joe knows, um, has got a great imagination. And she loved kind of trying to imagine these original parents of mine. So she'd say of my birth father, who was from Nigeria, I'm pictured in a Paul Robeson figure, Jackie. <laughs> Maybe with a bit of Nelson Mandela mixed in. <laughs> I, had this, I had this really kind of astonishing, really good-looking man that she was always saying of Paul Robeson, if I hadn't gone for your father, I'd have gone for Paul. <laughs> like, 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 she's five foot two. Like, she had um, a real choice in the matter. So I really, <laughs> I really like the idea that... that, um, that, that Imagining yourself has has a, has a powerful force, yes. and in a way, it is redeeming because the truth was always much more strange, uh, much more stranger. Um, um, so when I met my my birth um, father, he was um, a born again uh, Christian, and spent the first two and a half hours of our original meeting singing and dancing and clapping around me. And at one point, <laughs> at one point in the middle of this, I realised that he was trying to cleanse me that he saw me as his past sin. He said, if people were to know about you, they would lose their faith in God. <laughs> I said, heavens, I hadn't realised I was that powerful. <laughs> so yeah, it's just, yeah. And then, and then also when I chased my birth mother, I discovered that she was a Mormon. Uh, living in Milton Keynes, which was very different from my imagination of this highland. She was from the highlands originally, and I'd imagined this highland woman, um, possibly Catholic, but not a Mormon, living in Milton Keynes. I remember when I told my mum that my mother was a Mormon, she went, oh, Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> 
that's the pits. Why not have a wee half bottle and forget all about it? <laughs> but, but the thing about it is that you, you can't really forget. So, so these kind of, they, they run alongside you, these different, the imaginary These different ones realities. And the, and the, the, the reality and the imaginary. And I realised that my, you know, my, the, and my, my adoptive parents were just so, um, you know, having traced my... Uh, original parents, you know, I think few. <laughs> well, I always thought few anyway, because I feel fated to be with them. They're kind of really wonderful people. But now that I've actually found my original parents, I think of it with capitals, like cartoon capitals and exclamation marks. So they, they feel like they've redeemed me talking of redemption, mm. because you don't know what the other life would have been, you know, mm. the, the orphanage or the... the, the um, the abusive parents or whatever, you don't know what that would have been. So I feel definitely redeemed um, um, by them and by the ability to try and find a way to create a, a narrative yeah. out of all of these different um, factors. And things. that creative, creating of a narrative, or, so, you know, when I was listening, I listened to you read Red Dust Road rather than reading it, which was incredibly powerful, hearing your very beautiful voice. It reminded me, or at least for things always do this to me, they remind me of what it is then, we do that, we create narrative, we, get about, we create our patients as stories. Um, and towards the end of the book, um, your adopted mother is taken ill um, and is taken to a hospital where a young and quite arrogant doctor you describe as translating her, which is a, a just struck me is the language you chose there. The doctor doesn't seem to be seeing a human being. He sees her age and translates her into a second-class citizen. So his imagination, his invention, conscious or not, as we realise much of it is unconscious, is um, debriding her of humanity into flesh and less, um, which is really powerful. Yeah, no, it, it is. I mean, the... It's been really interesting listening to, to these these sessions because it does make you think there are there are instances of where people don't see the huma humanity in the in the person that, that, that stay with you, and at that same that same time, um, my mum was able to get home for the night, and um, we had to call a taxi because the ambulance wouldn't you know would have had to wait hours in an ambulance, and um, and the, the woman um, said to me. Are you taking the old biddy back to her care yeah. home? And um, she couldn't actually think that I was her daughter. Yeah. I mean, often people don't think because we're different colours that I'm her daughter. But that was a really extreme example of. Um, luckily, my mum didn't hear it. She's very hard of hearing, so so she didn't hear it. But I did tell her the next day. <laughs> she went bloody cheek. Wait till I get my hands on her. But it was just the old biddy back to the care home. It just made so many different assumptions. Assumptions about my relationship with her, about that my colour that I would have to be a kind of a care orderly, um, you know, and that and that, sh that she was not to be talked to, that she wasn't even to be translated in that instance, that she was to have no voice, talking about voice, no voice whatsoever. Yes. And, and I think, um, you know, one of the jobs of the, the writers, that Jo, 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 jo does this in all of her, yeah. her writing, is to try and give a voice yes, to, 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 to perhaps the voiceless, um, to, to the things that don't get voices, and, and find a way to, to articulate this, uh, articulation for the silent, I suppose you might call yes. it, and um, writing imaginatively. It's always trying to find some sort of way of articulating the, the silent and the uneasy um, experience. I, I couldn't have said that better in exactly that. That Joe, so what you know, so uh, an episode of invention there on behalf of the doctor <coughs> robbed your mother 
of a voice at a really critical and important time, made her voiceless, yet that's similarly. In fact, both of you were, but Joe, giving voice to um, people or indeed inanimate objects um, in your poetry is astonishing and done, for me anyway, in a way that is almost, it's complete, it's conversational, so there's another layer of voice there. It feels effortless and conversed. Um, and particularly in my favourite, my favourite poems of yours are the um, Tender Taxes, um, mm, which um, many people mightn't have, in fact, read. In fact, we scoured the country for these and found five <laughs> copies in the country which um, are all signed, in fact, already, and upstairs in the Waterstones desk, and, you know, we'll charge you 40 or 50 quid each for them. Um, a snatch. We'll take all that money, of course. Um, those poems are giving voice to roses and flowers um, and, and giving them a particularly a female voice. I just wonder if you could talk a bit about those poems. Yeah, um, before I talk about those specifically, um, the, the whole job of giving voice to the voiceless for me, and I think maybe for Jackie too, has an element of play in it. And I, I love the way that um, Melanie and Rebecca use the word play in yes. terms of the really important work they do, but they couldn't do it without that spirit of, of experiment and extending extension of oneself, outside oneself, that comes with play. Yeah. And I, I've related strongly to that, and I feel in a way that happens in certainly in the way yes. I write. Yes, um, Yes, it has a job to do, and it's an important job in the world, but it also has that spirit, without which I don't think there'd be readers. I think that's, that's a very important point. In, in the book Tender Taxes, um, <laughs> I took some pre-existing poems by the great German language poet Rainer Maria Rilke. I discovered he'd actually written in French as well as his own language, which I think is just showing off, frankly. <laughs> and that gave me a kind of license to play with his poems. They're quite frothy and not like his kind of very serious, heavy work. Um, and really, in, in many of them, I, I disagreed with his poem, so I wrote another one that disagreed with it. So they're like conversations. And we, we've talked a lot about listening. In, in a way, these are kind of listening and responding poems. And I think I really want to acknowledge the importance of the reader and the listener. Mm. And we don't think about it enough, we don't celebrate it enough or write about it enough, the way, um, you know, when you get really interested in your book, the writer, what they're talking about, they move in with you. Mm. They become really important. You know, they're as important as the actual walking, talking individuals in your house sometimes mm. to the annoyance of those people. And I'm sure everyone will know, will have had that experience. And that's exactly what happened when I read those poems. The interesting thing is you start conversing with that writer. You don't always agree. Sometimes a little, you're lying in the bath thinking, <laughs> quarrelling. I hope that'll happen to everyone after this medicine unboxed. You'll go home think and, and lie in the bath and quarrel with yes. what you've heard. And th it's that kind of resonance yes. That, yes. that I wanted to bring in into my book. I never actually intended it to be a book. It was just sort of responding to those poems with my own. I didn't really intend to publish them at all. That just sort of happened by accident in the end. And the, this reminds me, in fact, directly of one of, of the short stories in Reality Reality, where the, um, the lines of boundary between a patient and a doctor completely disappear. Um, 
So this idea of, of Joe's that you, you end up, you know, that you end up, that the person that's written the poems end up almost inhabiting, infecting you, and you, you're having this conversation perpetually. In this story, the patient's voice gets, um, they lose their voice, and the doctor starts speaking their words in ways that are really intrusive to both and surprising. Um, the, the membrane between them's vanished at all levels. He happens to be, as many are, a very dashing Indian doctor, doesn't he? <laughs> yeah. Well, why Which not? Which is great. I mean, it's good to... It's, I just like, I'm glad they're out there. Might be a fiction writer if can't invent dashing Indian doctors. <laughs> yeah. Um, what, what happened? What was the prompt for that story? Um, I just find my imagination. I suppose I was thinking about when... Um, I was writing about a, a woman who has um, dementia and she's starting to lose the things that she wants to say, and I suddenly had this idea of what if the things that she actually was searching for were inside a doctor's head, and what if she became aware that, that she wanted to find this doctor, so it becomes a kind of a, a quest story, but the doctor actually does have and does say out loud, so he yes. finds himself blurting out in his doctor's surgery, oh, my tights, I've got a snag, a yes. ladder in my tights, and his patients are like freaked out because they're wondering what's what's going on, so in a way it's a, it's a kind of comic um, look, but also quite a, a sad uh, uh, story about about reversals and uh, and but but in the end it's, it's it, it turns out to be quite quite hopeful but I don't know how what gave me first the, the idea I suppose I was thinking a lot about uh, dementia because when I found my birth mother she had uh, dementia and she's well she still does but um but um I, I became really fascinated with the fact that she had forgotten the daughters that she brought up but she remembered me um, and so the most potent thing for her was the thing that she had kept secret and the secret me uh, was the last thing to go so I was the last person that, that she probably, she doesn't recognise me now but that I was the last person that she recognised and I found that really a very um, you know strange and, and um, moving and upsetting experience the idea of um, of what is recognised by whom and at what point in their their lives and the, the slippage. I think Lionel was using the word slippage er, earlier, but the the idea of the of the things that, that that slip and get lost through the net, and that if you could retrieve them, that goes back to that idea of redemption. If you could retrieve some of these lost things mm. or these lost secrets, if you could just you know put your net into the river and and, and get them back up, then what what a different quality of life you would you'd have. So. Um, and one of the early stories in the book, which is really powerful to me, These Are Not My Clothes, is a first-person narrative of someone who has got dementia in a, in a nursing home, I believe. Is that right? And, mm. and her, her experience of the world, in, in a way, I've never felt um, quite so manifestly. Um, it's really powerful as a work mm. of fiction. Mm. Are, we in a, are we in a position to hear it at all, or any of oh. it? Oh, okay. <laughs> yes. Just as well, I brought this book. Just so. <laughs> yes, this, this um, story just really came about from the very first uh, line of it. You know, I just had this first line in my head for ages, uh, staring out of a window. Sometimes that, that happens, you stare out of a window and a sentence comes and the view that I was staring out into is the view in the story. These are not my clothes, I tell her. These are not my clothes, but she puts them on me anyway. She says, lift your arms, that's it, over your head, there now, all fresh, as if I were a bloody baby. Everything belongs to everybody here, she says. What's it matter? 
These are not my clothes, I repeat. I heard you the first time, she says. Then she takes me to the window and parks me. Bit of a wind today, she says. A good drying day. I sit and look out. What I see are the trees waving as if they're asking for help or as if they're saying, we surrender. There's an empty wooden table in the garden with a red umbrella down and not up in the middle because there is no sunshine. And there's a blue pot with some flowers I used to know the name of, but I've forgotten. So I'll call them forgotten flowers. There are forgotten flowers in the blue pot. And the bench, nobody is sitting on it. The bench is staring straight ahead as if it's watching something, maybe a match. There's a huge high hedge, I think, or it could be a stone wall with things growing through it. It's difficult to decipher things where things begin to grow. Will that do for that? Yes. Okay. Pop up reading. <laughs> Just, you, you know, you're behind her eyes um, seeing this. It's, you know. yeah. Well, in, her, in that story, she begins to use the, her imagination as a kind of a form of survival. So all that she's got really is the view out of this window. So then she starts to imagine what book the, the bench is reading. Maybe the bench is French, she thinks. Maybe the bench is reading Madame Bovary. That's the name of a book she read once. So, so her imagination really becomes part of her, her survival um, because that's all she can do. She can look out the window and she can think what's what's happening there. So in a sense, I see that as quite a, a strong yes. uh, a strong story that she's she's trying to, yeah, she, she, she's not letting the people that are taking her clothes off uh, um, and giving her the wrong clothes and putting in and giving her, you know, not changing her pads enough and uh, all the rest. She's not letting them win. And it seems to me a story that needed to be told because some of the stories that you that you that you write and some of the poems that you write you write really out of a sense of, of despair and also of a, a sense that that is that is a voiceless person mm. in our society and mm. it's it, it's um yeah what, what's she thinking mm. what's actually going on in her head what's what's going on in her mind I mean, played to every health professional in the uk with our hundred and fifty thousand pounds will be completely transformative and i urge you all to either read it or hear it um, read um, without hesitation or delay. In interestingly, from that, um, Joe, I've got it from your the recent poem on the Keats poem, where the <clears throat> Keats, a modern Keats, 21st century Keats, is in a consultation with a patient, and the, the line that struck me within that was the doctor saying to this patient, "Relax and let your identity press on me." Um, as though you would gain a print of the patient. Extraordinary. Yeah. Um, I've written two of these poems in which the poet John Keats is imagined as a modern doctor. The, the reason for that is I was poet in residence at the Keats house in Hampstead, which is a very potent place to go. If any, go if you haven't been. Really, really interesting. Defy you not to cry when you see Fanny Braun's engagement ring. Oh. Oh. But... Um, you probably all know that Keats was trained as a doctor. Um, he, his, his certificate is on display at the house. Um, it was a long training. Uh, he was apprenticed as an apothecary for five years. And then he had to go <coughs> and train at Guy's Hospital um, under a surgeon. He was the surgeon's dresser. And it, people often think he just gave up because he wasn't really very good at this and that he was really a poet. But actually, only 12 of several hundred trainees got to become dressers 
So he must have actually been very good. Um, and being a dresser, being the surgeon dresser was not fun because surgery had to be done very quickly with limited anesthesia and the dresser's job basically was to take care of the patient after that job um, and assist and do small operations too. Um, so uh, by coincidence, I then ended up having to go to guys for something minor during the time that I was thinking about Keats. So um, in, in these, I, I created... Keats as a modern doctor, imagining what he would be like. Shall oh, I read one I'd of like those? to hear it. Yeah, okay. It's an amazing poem. He's, pop, he's got two poems. I'll read one of them. I, I'm, he might come back. We'll see. <laughs> okay. The other thing to say about this, um, those of you who are in Andrew Motion's session will, will have heard him talk a little bit about Keats and his idea of negative capability. And one aspect of that was being able to be so empathetic with others and you know, even nature that, that the boundaries between the self and the world became translucent. So he talked about looking out of the window and, and being able to be the sparrow picking at the gravel outside the window. So that idea of the, uh, comes in at the end with the idea of pressing your identity. So the first poem was called At Guys. This is the second, Back at Guys. I think maybe I need to work on the title. <laughs> Back at Guys. Come in, come in. My name is Dr. Keats. Yes, we have met, I know. Was it when we reviewed your x-ray? I remember the ribs shifting round towards the spine, turning and turning in a panoramic slideshow with a flicker of, of organic mystery triggered with every blink. I am going to read your test results to you, but note there is no shadow across my face, no whispering among your notes. Let me check your pulse for axioms, for nothingness, or the beat between. You look drowsy, clouded, blood drawn into your forehead. These may be side effects, only to be expected in your airy condition. Stay steady, entangled, relax, and let your identity press on me until I am entirely in the know. <laughs> There is a sense, um, Jackie, reading your work. Um, so particularly when I, you know, if you look at Red Dust Road, the conversations you hear, there isn't a kind of single truth. Um, so your adopted mother and father will kind of disagree, for example, around when they met and how they met. And then through that disagreement, through that kind of almost chorus of two voices, the reader imagines a kind of middle ground of reality and similarly then in works to me like trumpet we hear lots of people's versions of this one person uh, and again famously in the adoption papers lots of voices not just the one which you know in a sense has been what we've unboxed this weekend a number of voices rather than a single version of what is true about patienthood or health professionalhood um, is that something you deliberately strive for, recognising that actually you want a number of voices rather than just the teller? Yeah, no, it definitely is. Um, partly because, you know, 
I'd get bored with my own voice. <laughs> um, but, but also because I, I wanted to write a memoir that was multi-voiced because that was my experience. It was a multi-experience. I had, um, you know, I had my adoptive parents, I had my birth parents, and then I had also the imaginary parent, birth parents. So they, that's already six people, you know. <laughs> I was quite busy. And then, and then I had, my, you know, I had my, my brother that was adopted that I grew up with, but I had also these imagined other um, brothers and sisters that my, my birth mother and father might have had. And I wanted to try and create their, their voices, their syntax, their rhythms, their way of speaking, um, so as the reader would feel that they were with all of these people, and actually people that know my mum and dad when they read Red Dust Road, they feel like they've spent an afternoon with them. So that to me is, is great. But my dad, when he was reading the book, I got him, you know, obviously I showed him the book before it was uh, the proof of the book to see if there was anything he'd uh, object to. And, uh, and uh, there's a bit in it where I describe him as f feeling threatened um, uh, that that I found his father in Nigeria because he had had a, quite a strange reaction to it as 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 you know as you do when, when that that's a strange thing about tracing it kind of upsets everybody in different in different ways and uh, and he he said why would I be why would I be threatened when I wasn't threatened when you found your your birth mother and she's in this country and he's all the way in Nigeria. And my mum said, because it's another father, John. And he said, well, can you put in your book, my dad disputes this. <laughs> so <laughs> so I, had to, I had to try and find a way to, 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 put, to, to put that sentence in, which I, which I did. I had to put it in the conditional. <laughs> Although if I were to say this, then he would dispute it. But um, I find that really interesting. The, the, and also the, the um, responses to things, the people objected to things that I didn't expect them to. Um, you know, my, my, my brother... You know, uh, he, he said, he read the book and he said, uh, I, I think it's of interest to me and our family. I can't imagine anybody else being interested in it at all. <laughs> so I was actually really worried about that because I thought, yeah, maybe that's, you know, maybe that's right. That's your biggest worry as a, as a writer that you'll only be finding it interesting to yourself and, and a small amount of maybe other people that love you dearly and everybody else. Anyway, but my brother really just um, objected to, 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 he said, sister, page 145, you've got me riding a Yamaha 750. <laughs> It's a Honda 500 XL. <laughs> There's all these tiny details that seem to really, really matter um, to people. So I really wanted to capture that kind of the, the, the voice in dispute as well, the voice that kind of disagrees with what the writer is trying to say. So, so it became a kind of organic uh, process of trying to, um, you know, trying to mimic, I suppose, their, yes. their, um, their, their voices. Uh, do a good impersonation of my dad. Don't you know? Really good impersonation. <laughs> Can we hear any of it at all? Oh, yeah. Red Dust Road, perhaps. Um, which bit? You... Um, your shout, completely. Mm, my you, shout? Yeah. yeah. Oh, which bit do you think, Joe? Oh. Um, well, I think I'll read a little bit from... Uh, yeah, from for just the first, the first um, meeting with my... Uh, birth father uh, because after um, this two and a half hour thing that I was telling you about where he danced and danced around me and, uh, and sang to me for two and a half hours we got out to the hotel bar where um, you know, I downed a glass of wine in one gulp <laughs> and, uh, and then uh, Jonathan started to ask me about my sexuality so, uh, so I'll just read you a little bit from that, since it's the most challenging bit for me to read. And why not? Yes. Okay. Okay. 
Jonathan beams at me with real pride. God intended us to meet, he says again. Everything is going well for me. I found a church in this hotel complex. I went to that service this morning, then I gave you your service. Now I healed you, and I've healed this stranger. She knew to come to me. So, he says, you said in your letter that you didn't want to answer to a man. <laughs> that is an odd thing to say. He laughs his laugh, which is a bit like my laugh. So, if you're not married and you do not have a boyfriend or such, how do you cater for your sex drive? <laughs> the question flies straight out of the blue African sky and flaps around me like a rare bird. I blink and knock back some more cold and indifferent white wine. I think to myself, what have I got to lose? I imagine that he'd think of my lesbianism as deviant, disturbed even, perhaps a sly work of Satan. But by this hour in the long day, I have a devil-may-care attitude and couldn't care less if he gets up from the table and walks away or if he gets down on his knees again and asks me to repent. What the hell, I think to myself, slightly inebriated. Bring it on! <laughs> Still, I hesitate a little longer, vacillating between bravery and cowardice. You can tell me. I'm your father, he urges winningly. It's the first time he said this simple sentence. He sees it working and repeats it with extra condiments. I'm your father. You can tell me anything. There is nothing that would shock me. <laughs> it's the first time, too, that he's appeared really interested in anything about me. Just my luck, not in my son, not in my childhood, not in my university days, not in my books, not in my parents, but in my sex drive. <laughs> Fucking brilliant. <laughs> well, you know the woman you spoke to on the telephone? Yes, yes, yes. Well, she's my partner. What do you mean? She's my partner. How so? She's my lover. We've been together for 15 years. I don't bother telling him that just before I flew to Nigeria, Caroline told me she didn't love me anymore and wanted our relationship to end. Too complicated. You mean you're a lesbian? He credits the word lesbian with three syllables with an emphasis on the an. Lesbian. You mean you're a lesbian? Yes, that's right. I'm a lesbian. Despite myself, I'm agog to see how he'll take this news. Okay, 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 okay. He says a string of okay is like prayer beads. Then very quickly he says, okay, 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 okay. Which one of you is the man? Just wonderful, amazing. Uh, it goes on, it gets even worse. It does. Bit, <laughs> and the, the description you were having earlier on of all, all, all the family members disagreeing around subtle elements, it, it's the kind of thing that just, you know, we all the time, and we're really bad at this as healthcare professionals. You know, we say, oh, they're really, they're challenging family or difficult historians because you'll be in a room with four people and everyone will be giving you a different version of what happened. It wasn't your left leg, John, it was your right arm. You didn't really hurt, did it? You said it was just uncomfortable, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And we, rather than actually just being unreceived for all of that and then reconfiguring it, we find it disabling and exhausting for reasons that are obvious, you know, there's limited time but we find it an affront that there isn't, what is the version, you know, give me the history, what is the history, rather than in fact, as you show so much, there are 
different versions of it all the time. Well, I think the truth is the accumulation of voices. You know, yes. the truth lies always in between one yes. person and another. And the, and the truth, we, we do seem to be obsessed with trying to pin things down and to get to pinpoint things with absolute accuracy. But all of our memories are intensely fab, uh, fallible and involve a lot of fiction. Yes. And why, why can't the imaginative truth be a truth too? You know, um, so I'm really int interested in what we you know, how we try and pin reality down and memory and it, it seems to me so so elusive that, that the truth is an accumulation of a chorus of voices and that's quite liberating because once you decide that the truth is, you know, that I am part of all of these different people, I, I feel like I don't have to choose. People are always asking you obsessively, so, you know, what, do you feel more Scottish or do you feel more Nigerian? In Nigerian people will say, how come your sense of humour is so Nigerian? And in Glasgow people are saying, you're dead Glaswegian, you know, so it's very funny and I just find that, that thing of people always wanting you to have a, to have a side to choose what is part of our kind of human condition that we always need to have this and actually it's, it's very liberating just to take the sides down to slip through and I, I think I think that's right I think it's what all writers do is even even memoirists like yourself hmm. play fast and loose with the truth to make Another truth. Yes. That's the important thing to make the truth of the thing that you've written, exactly. rather than some, you know, newspaper account of whatever happened. And Joe, you say that yeah. in, the, in the in the introduction to the tender taxes that, in yeah. arguing, not just you arguing with Rilke, the roses were arguing. They were saying, it's not like this. It's not like your imposed version. It's like yeah. this. They were turning that truth right. around. So the versions and translations were. Counter versions. Shall I say Please. something about Moon Reader Fugue? Yes, since we've got onto the sex drive. Yes, let's keep going. Very late <laughs> in Medicine Unboxed, may I say. But here we are. Well, I, I tempered it this year. <laughs> okay, so Rilke wrote a, a, a load of very tiny poems called The Roses, and he, he wrote about 30 of them, um, and they were. They were numbered. They they weren't. They didn't have titles. And I realized I realized pretty early on that they were probably girlfriends. Each one. They were all different. Um, and he addresses them as you or thou, and it's quite formal. Um, I changed all this. I, I made them speak, and in a way they talk back. I also named them. So each little tiny poem is is named for a rose in botanical Latin, and I really loved doing the research for that. I, I might add. Um, the other thing that I discovered, and I was, I was far too into the project to give it up by this time, but his range of images is very tiny for his poems. It's, it's more or less just petal, space, petal. And then I realized maybe it wasn't just girlfriends, it was individual female genitalia. Too late, I was in the project. <laughs> Any gynecologists here? <laughs> um, but so my, my roses argue back and Having said that, it's still kind of a long love poem, and maybe one to Rilke himself, although it contains disagreement, argument, anger, all kinds of different levels of emotion. And it's a bit sexy, so be careful. Rosa Gallica. If sometimes you're surprised by my coolness, because it's inside myself, petal against petal, I'm asleep. I've been completely awake while my heart dozed for who knows how long, speaking aphids and bees to you in silence, speaking English through a French mouth. Rosa Hemispherica. 
You see me as half open, a book whose pages can be turned by the wind, then read with your eyes closed. Butterflies stream out, stunned to discover they think just like you, dab wings all over your face. Rosa Fatida, I'm an imperfect thing, neat, layered, but spilling petals and pollen, dropping bruised scent onto the ground. Essence of roses is not sweet, but brown at the edges, like the air you breathe. Rosa Centifolia. So you think you caused the bud to bloom, enchanted the petals into smiling. We're talking Rosa Centifolia, the hundred petaled rose. Ask the bee who can't concentrate on anything else. <laughs> Rosa Pimplefolia. Oh, I'm leaning against your forehead, against your eyelid, scenting your skin with my own, making you think you can sleep inside my face. Rosa Sancta. Now you've made a saint out of me, Saint Rose, open-handed, she who smells of God naked. But for myself, I've learned to love the whiff of mildew because though not Eve exactly, yes, I stink of the fall. I'm going to raise, can we raise the house lights, please? We have a few minutes for some questions. Um, and just on the, um, the back there, there's a hand up, and then one on the right here, please. Can I'm we have the house lights up a bit further, please? Right up. Thank you. Okay. Yes. Um, I read that the, there's a, was this belief in Japan that if you read an author's voice, an author's work, you were speaking with their voice. What would happen if you two read each other's poems aloud? How different would it be? Should we do it? <laughs> Probably not time to do it, but I think it would be very different. I think, but, but great. I mean, you know, wonderful. I think that people often say when they read your work, they say, now that I've heard you read, I can hear your voice yeah. when I read the, the poems or whatever it is that they're reading. And I think that people actually like that. They yes. like to take the voice to the book. And for some reason, it offers a little key. It opens up the poems for them and the actual voice of the actual writer in a way that, 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 that they might not be opened up. But it's, it's interesting because when you have your poems read by other people like actors or other writers or whatever, they'll often emphasise different words or say them differently. And, and that can be quite illuminating for you as well. So I, I think there isn't really... A right, yeah. wouldn't you agree? There, isn't it? I think I, th I love to read my poems because I think it allows, it remi reminds me of how I heard them, and it gives me a chance to get that over how mm. I heard them, how how I created, if you like, the orchestra for mm. the poems. Um, but on the other hand, it is wonderful to hear them read to you. You find out new things about them, or even to be sung, mm. as, as happens sometimes. Mm. But um, what I've been enjoying about the music, because it's been largely non-verbal is how interesting that is. I didn't miss language. In fact, I found those, the, the singing a kind of exploration of language 
without the burden of language. So you kind of learned more about communication without these fragile, inadequate words that are beautiful, but that's what we work with yeah. in the end. Because we also, I suppose, work with, with, with the silence and the, the yeah. pauses and the spaces in between. And so when, you have a, when, you've, when you've written um, a poem, you have exactly in your head where you think there should be um, pauses, and they become part of the, the poem as well. Um, just as the things that you don't say in a memoir become part of the story, and um, the things that you leave out become as crucial and make the re reader as curious as the things that are, are stated. So I think you, as a writer, you give a lot of thought as well to silence, which seems a, a paradoxical thing to say, but isn't, isn't really, we, we recognize it from the, the things that we keep from other people about our, our lives. We all have things that we withhold as well as things that we tell. And I'm quite interested in, in that as well. Yeah. They, 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 um, so when you have somebody read your, your work, they don't necessarily have the same silence. It sounds a bizarre thing to say, but it's, it's, it's true, I think. Mm. It's a really interesting question, that. Terry. Um, this is by way of a huge thank you to Jackie. Um, I've worked for many years in preparing people for adoption to take children who they're going to adopt. We've used your poems for many, many years, so if you ever had any doubts that it would be of interest only to your family, I can assure you that I personally can vouch for a few hundred, so thank you. <laughs> Well, I might ask then, actually, if there are no others. Joe, yesterday we started with a poem um, which you wrote for Medicine Unboxed, and I wondered whether you might just read it for us. Yeah. Um, I'll say a bit about it this time uh, rather than give it to you cold. It, it's an imaginary consultation from the point of view of the patient, but I think I was still in the Dr. Keats zone back at Guy's um, because, yeah, let's see. It's called Consult. You can see by my pointy, loquacious finger that I have completely lost my voice. Please help me open my mouth and sing a glass garden into the sky with fish pools and a flowering tree, fluting birds, pursuit and piping. It will make our hearts soften in our bodies. Take a swab for the lab, suss out a treatment, because I do wish to go back to saying things out loud. Although I have considered the hues and liberations, the beauties of not speaking. You think my silence lets you hear me better, lets you see my thread of unruly thought turn on its spool. I think we'll have to actually, because of time, close there. I hope that's all right. I just want to thank very much. A big it's round a of applause. Place to, a lovely place to end. And that last final image. Astonishing, yes. Yeah. Jackie Kane, Joe Shapcock. Yeah.